Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. What's up, Solutionaires? Welcome back to the Indisposable Podcast. I'm your host, Priscilla Johnson, Chief Strategy Officer at Upstream. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dave Ford, founder of Ocean Plastics Leadership Network, or is affectionately known as OPLN. OPLN is an educational organization dedicated to helping all sides of the plastic issue learn from each other. And as a matter of fact, we're rounding out the year with learning again from Dave about how we are doing up to this point, especially with all of the activity going on with COP27 um, rounding up this weekend. And then next week, we've got the Global Plastics Treaty in Uruguay. Uh, and Dave's involved in all these things. And he's seen a lot um, that's progressed over this year. And this is the purpose of this podcast is to recap 2022 and to plant seeds for 2023, really to give us some inspiration around what we have been doing and what we've been after for a long time. So I'm just going to turn it over to Dave and he can do what he does best, which is just talk that talk about what we can do in 2023 with new partners at the table, Dave. We see new folks that are coming online and you're educating them. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, thanks. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me, Priscilla. Really grateful to be here. Really grateful to think macro, big picture, what just happened in the last year, what needs to happen going forward. I am, yes, yeah, straight out of 10 days in Sharm el-Sheikh for COP27. So uh, definitely like up to my ears in climate and then head into Uruguay for the first international negotiating committee for the Global Plastics Treaty, which is happening next week. So in between two pretty major global summits. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting when we look at the plastics ecosystem and we look at all the different stakeholders at the table and certainly with respect respect to this treaty, the governments, you know, 170 governments are going to be down there that they're the ones that are responsible for drafting this treaty, right? And of course you have the plastic value chain, the petrochemical sector and the packaging converters and the consumer packaged goods companies and the retailers and the waste managers and the commodities uh, that make the plastic feedstock to begin with. Then you have the financial sector and how they're pushing the plastic value chain through ESG. And you have universities and design firms and research firms putting out 80 page paper after 80 page paper and NGOs putting pressure on the plastic value chain and the governments and consumers completely confused about what to do, not adopting reuse and refill in the way that we need them to quite yet, but also not recycling anything. And then informal sector, global South waste pickers that are so like intricately uh, engaged and important with this issue. And then you have solutions, right? Which are interesting because they're like the landmines, right? You have all these policy initiatives, EPR policies, you know, in the US specifically, there's like these massive macro fights about EPR and about deposit return and single use plastic bans and plastic credits and advanced recycling and 
you know, whether or not to put money into scaling recycling infrastructure and cleanups. Anyway, it's just, it's super chaotic and confusing. But what I'm really excited about is that the one thing that absolutely everyone can agree on is that reuse and refill is a good idea, at least, you know, spiritually, right? Like the practicalities of how to scale it and how to build the system that we used to have that we've totally taken down is is super complicated right there's there's a lot of questions and a lot of povs and 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 probably a lot of a lot of fear from a lot of these stakeholders but like reuse and refill is that one shining light in this sea of complexity that everyone can agree on and we're starting to see that at the global plastics treaty level anyway I get yeah. pretty excited about this. And what we do is we help all these organizations that I just mentioned learn from each other so they can understand each other's positions. And we do policy convenings. We do behind closed door sessions to help uh, establish alignment where these organizations might not realize that it already exists. Yeah, it's kind of like what's old is new again. And there's a there's a healthy respect for reuse, I think, and refill. Um, because people are sometimes they remember from their childhood, you know, what it was like to be able to to do these things or it exists in their own countries. Right. Where you can drop something off for a deposit, um, get that deposit back and then get a brand new thing returned right uh, in your hand. Uh, and it feels good. And so we have it seems like, you know, we're in these different realities almost where there is that land of well what used to be we now we have to reinvent and it seems so big and expensive and then there's a reality where some people live in all the time like you know maybe in certain parts of Europe and and Mexico where you can do reuse refill and not even really think about it it's a cultural thing and then you have you know the the discussions that we're talking about is is you know, the reuse and reduction of plastics in our society and the confusion around it. And so reuse and refill is is another option, but it seems to bring to bear these reductions in just energy and water intensities that we are we see existing from this single-use plastic society and culture that we're living in. So it sounds like, you know, OPLN is, is, is changing a cultural tide with education. And we now have new players at the table that are starting to consider how reuse and refill can proliferate throughout, in particular, North America. Yeah. And I mean, this last huge portion of my energy this last year has been engaging so many of our members, we have like 150 members, activists to industry. I mean, we have the petrochemical sector in the same broad network as like a like a Greenpeace and some organizations that you know absolutely don't see eye to eye or, or get along. But we've we've we found value helping these organizations learn from each other because things are moving so fast that it it, it makes sense for us to understand where alignment is. And you know, it's interesting. Like I've been in conversations with lots of the big beverage guys and the fast food companies and the consumer packaged goods companies. And the, I mean, uniformly, they're all trying to figure this out. And a lot of it's like adopting consumer behavior, but it's also like talking to the beer guys. I mean, I didn't even think about it, but kegs are 
reuse and refill, right? It's been a long time since I've been in college, but you know, you pay 20 bucks for a keg and then you take it back and you get your 20 bucks back. And it's like, they just use that keg over and over and over and over and over again. And like, I think most, uh, most of us that had some, some, some days partying in our lives back in the day, uh, remember that it's existing. It happens. It's a, it's a, it's here in the U S that, that one, that specific reuse and refill model is still alive and well as where the milk bottles and Coke bottles of old, where they all got used to return that, that all got replaced by plastic. This specific use case is still thriving, which is interesting. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I think, um, you know, some of our, our listeners, they, they want to know more about that. You know, um, they might be younger and, and not know that in Europe, this is a very well developed, you know, industry, if, if you will. Uh, so in particular, beer in Germany, I know I, I went to university there and it was just part of what you did. Uh, it wasn't anything extra. It was, you know, the quote unquote infrastructure was already there and it was just well accepted. And not only just accepted, it was expected that you participate in the reuse refill portion of it. But I think that part of it was the incentives were already there in place for the consumer and it was made really convenient and easy. Yeah, totally. And I mean, how can we recreate those sorts of use cases with so many different products. I mean, I think it's interesting. Like we talked to like some pain points from some of our companies that put cleaning products on shelves, for example, that we work with and we work with a bunch of them. They have these incredible pilots and these products that they've developed and like the having a refill for a cleaning product is saves a tremendous amount of plastic. You have a plastic bottle, you buy a, you buy a small refillable thing that you mix with water and then like, bang, you're good to go. You don't have this constantly buying plastic bottles of spray cleaning detergent. But how do you get the consumers to recognize that on the shelf, right? And like, there's so much consumer just behaviors that are just ingrained. You do these things that you're, you're not, you know, obviously without even thinking a lot of times, you're buying a certain product off the shelf that you always buy when you need it. And you check a box and then you're on to the next thing, right? But there, there is a ton of innovation. So it's working, I think, from w- when we talk about system change, there's just, there's all these, these hurdles and barriers, but it's, it's, it's the right journey to be on. And it's, it's, again, why I'm so excited about this, because we are seeing all this incredible innovation. Yeah. And you, you talked about, um, you know, some of the, the companies that you worked with, and I'm sure they're, they're very large brands that are uh, kind of testing out um, the waters with this. Uh, you know, on one side, you know, we hear that the consumers really, really want this. They want an alternative. They don't want to be swimming in plastic. They don't want to do beach pickups all the time. They, I mean, it's a sad situation for people to see, you know, when they see animals caught up in our plastic. And so they, they want it. But at the same time, um, there is the lack of that infrastructure in place in certain regions um, people feel like it's really too far of a reach for an infrastructure even even to be built. So what do we do with that? Um, you know, and what are some of the businesses uh, that you have seen uh, successful this year in 2022 where either there's been an uptick in uh, the adoption of reuse or a consideration where there was never before a consideration to even consider reuse and refill? I'm a huge fan of El Gramo, and I think they're an incredible use case, you know, specifically for that uh, cleaning product 
uh, archetype. Um, I mean, they, they basically have kiosks that you can refill your soap or your shampoo or, you know, all these different cleaning products that you, instead of having to go buy the bottle a million different times, you just refill it. And they're, have done incredible work in, in Chile, uh, where they're based. And, you know, I think the other thing about it is, is they, they really appeal to this demographic, more of like a lower economic, uh, demographic that really needs to save that money. And, you know, if they don't have to buy the plastic bottle t- for their laundry detergent, that is going to make the product less expensive. So, uh, and you, you know, they have like mobile kiosks. I'm, I'm a, yeah, I love, uh, what Al is doing for sure. And I'm sure you guys work with, you guys work with them. Yeah. And those, those refill stations, those refill businesses, I think are cropping up. Um, mainly they're hugging the coast. There's some in the Midwest as well, um, that have that model, uh, of either they provide the bottle or you bring the bottle in, but mainly you bring that bottle back, um, to refill. And, you know, they're, they're popping up, you know, they're not necessarily franchised, you know, as we would commonly see in the U.S. So the question becomes, you know, how does more of those types of businesses, how can they proliferate uh, around the country when we know that the demand is growing for that? I mean, I'm a huge believer that for this to really take root, we're going to need policy. Like we are going to need the governments of the world to say that we support this, we stand behind this, and we're going to do what it takes and spend the capital that that it takes to make this work at scale. You know, and I love the some of the use cases. I mean, if you just like look at you know some of the some of the cup companies that are doing reusable cups at concerts. Like that closed system where you have 5,000 people that are drinking beer or soda out of a cup and then all of a sudden those go to wash stations and get washed and reused. Like love those love those case studies because it's just really easy for people to get their head around, right? But then how do you scale that out into, you know, the supermarkets when you're taking the products home? And obviously like Loop does a great job and Tom, Tom Zaki is, you know, on our, on our advisory board. He's a really... Uh, you know, one of the sort of most known leaders in the, in the reuse world with, uh, with TerraCycle's loop product. But it's, uh, it's like, how do you make it tangible? How do you make it second nature? How do you make it easy? Right. And like, I really feel like policy is the way that this is going to scale significantly when you're talking about like massive wash stations, you know, from, if we were to redo the milk reuse, right. Or from a beverage sector. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about millions of bottles, right? So like you need sort of macro infrastructure and that's going to happen with government support. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think the most recent analogy to that is the electric vehicle uh, and how the government has supported not only build out of the infrastructure, um, but coupled with, you know, the increase in the uh, emissions um, reduction around automobile manufacturing, I, I think that uh, California's policy on, you know, transforming its an entire, um, you know, fleet of private vehicles, personal vehicles to electric um, in the next, in the coming couple of decades, it's a pretty audacious, uh, you know, goal to have. Um, but I think it's it's sort of like the market really follows, really, with it. Um, you know, people kind of get in line. I think I've seen in California where, you know, I, I spent a vast part of my my life 
Uh, I've seen people just get maligned. They just accept it. They're like, yeah, you know, this is the right thing to do. They make the infrastructure. They vote on the proposition. And you just sort of move ahead. And, you know, this doesn't seem to be any different than that. Um, because, again, it's it's really it's creating a whole nother economy, really. And then sub economies on top of that, which it spurs growth, it spurs economic growth. So I, I see there's a lot of excitement around that piece of it. And I think that, you know, we're, you know, we really think about free market and, and how the free market kind of drives things. There's also the, the, the case for the government public private partnerships as well. And I think that's what you're really talking about is like having the policy and then the free market to join up with it. So that really kind of leads us to the question of, you know, really, this should really be a national initiative as opposed to just state statewide. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see a real concerted push for that. And at the global level, like what could this look like at a global level? Right. I mean, the way these treaties work, the way, and we're not sure exactly how this one's going to work, right? But eventually, we're going to have plastic cops, just like we go to climate cops. It's going to be where the entire world descends on an annual basis, govern all these different stakeholders that I mentioned earlier to to talk about plastic. And I think it's I think it's pretty fascinating, right? Like because you know, is is there a way or a mechanism through this treaty that can like really encourage states? to adopt this. And we know that like advocacy groups like Break Free From Plastic, which I know that Upstream is a core member of, it's one of their most important, uh, highest ranking issues to be addressed in this treaty, right? So, you know, what countries are doing it the best, obviously like Europe's really like paving the way, like you mentioned, I think with a lot of waste uh, sort of regulations and, and, and policies that, that we're starting to really see work. Many have been in place for a really long time, but many, um, coming online really in the next five, 10 years, but how can we systematize this and, and, and make it, you know, something that can be introduced, you know, in all the countries of the world, because that's the only way we're really going to get ahead of this, right? It's systems change. We just can't keep, we just can't keep using and using and using and using and just throwing the stuff away. I mean, and, and recycling has its challenges, right? So that's why I'm really hopeful around reuse and refill. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, I definitely did not miss the point that you made about having a plastics cop. I mean, that's really visionary and necessary at the same time, because it tackles, uh, you know, very different but related things to the climate challenges that we have right now. Um, but it seems like the plastics is, it really will require global efforts um, to address things. So uh, in terms of leadership, I mean, OPLN is, is, is long been a leader in this space. And, and you've mentioned Break Free from Plastic. And what are some of the other partnerships that you have forged over the past year uh, that has really sort of accelerated either the ideology behind what you're trying to get to, or the actual implementation of some strategies that you've been looking at? Yeah, well, I think the difference, the, the thing to remember about us is that we've carved out this really unique position in just being a neutral convener, right? So we work with everyone from 
Greenpeace, the World Wildlife Front Fund. We work with organizations like WeGo in the Global South that represent the informal sector. We work with the Global Plastic Action Partnership at WEF. We work with the Recycling Partnership. We work with Alan MacArthur. We work with most of, we work with Upstream, most of the biggest organizations in the world that are dedicated to this issue, right? And then we work with the, the Cokes and the Pepsis and the Nestles and the Unilevers and the PNGs and the Colgates and the Cloroxes and uh, the Kimberly Clarks and a lot of material producers like, like the Balls. But we really hold this like, let's help everybody learn from each other is really like our, our mantra and let's have tough discussions so, so we can figure out where alignment is. So we don't have an advocacy position per se. Of course, we want an effective treaty that's going to solve this issue. And of course, we want to get behind programs that are, that are going to rapidly accelerate this. But there's, again, so much just for lack of a better way of put it, war between a lot of these organizations about the, the best approaches, right? Like cleanups generally in certain environmental communities are, are viewed as like distractions from like the real problem of like what, what they would consider just let's stop making so much plastic to begin with, right? Now, obviously like cleanups are, are, are important and I don't think anyone's saying like, so let's stop cleaning up the plastic in the oceans, but it just gets, it gets, it gets pretty interesting. So when you get into these, like what will be, you know, cop one, which could be in 2026, if these negotiations go the way, like there's five negotiations that are scheduled to happen between now and February, 2025. And then there's this event, it's called the conference of plenty potentiaries. And I did not know that word before I heard it, but now I'm, I'm a big fan of the word conference of plenty potentiaries in February, 2025, where if all goes on track, this treaty would be ratified. Now, there's thousands of bullet points that are going to be in this treaty. Right now, there's no global definitions that are agreed upon, right? Like all around the world, there's different definitions about how the plastic sector works. And it makes it really hard for the brands to do business. And it certainly makes it hard for all the environmental groups to just keep track of what's happening all over the world. So this, this at its minimum, this treaty has an opportunity to just harmonize standards and reuse standards can, can be a part of that. Reuse and refill is going to be uh, referenced in this, in this text. So I think that, you know, the real, for us, like over the last year, I mean, we've been partnering with everyone, you know, we are in so many different countries and we work, we've worked pretty closely with, we've been in seven different countries. Uh, we've done some work recently in Indonesia and in Malaysia and in Ghana and Chile and Pakistan, um, in the United Kingdom, helping their stakeholders learn from each other with respect to this treaty. So, I mean, we just want to continue that through this process. And I think the idea, if we are to get to a plastics treaty by 2025, there's a heck of a lot of education that needs to happen to just get everyone on the same page. So everyone, because there's just so many different stakeholders. I don't yeah. know if that's your question, but that. And, and it really does because, it, I mean, it reminds me of two things that, first of all, nobody wants to be left behind in terms of a stakeholder having a seat at the table. I think, I think the time is over for people to abdicate responsibility. If it's not just to be at the table to learn, right. And, and become educated, 
That's that's number one. And number two, um, you know, you talked about something really important, which is, um, you know, related to this plastics treatment treaty, which is standards, you know, developing these standards across the board. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's a conversation that we're having uh, right now in the reuse space where we're talking about, well, how can we standardize cups? How can we standardize silverware, you know, to be returned uh, and used in multiple places and multiple venues? Um, talk a little bit about what you mean by standards. Well, I think when you get into what we need to do to write the book on how the global plastic industry works or should work, which is really what I think the function of this treaty will be, you know, at its lowest expression, right? And it can obviously do a lot more than that. And hopefully we'll do a lot more than just like organize the, the, you know, the complexity of the system, but it, it all starts with definitions. And I mean, like one of the first things that they're talking about in this first international negotiating committee next month is life cycle. Like def- you have to define the life cycle, right? So we've been talking about upstream and downstream, right? So now there's this conversation around upstream and midstream and downstream and where plastic starts and where it ends. I mean, I think it's pretty uniformly agreed upon that plastic, you know, ends the end of life and recycling and, you know, or or it ends up in the environment or it ends up in landfill or you know where where do all of these different system elements sit inside of this upstream midstream downstream like so like we're we're talking just very brass tacks very foundational very basic right and you know we also you know eventually they'll be talking about substitutions and what other types of materials could be considered plastic substitutes or some should some not be considered because they're not good from systems when you get into cup size that'd be interesting to see if that is the kind of thing that can be a part of a global plastics treaty i don't that's not going to be happening next week next week is very sort of you know inning num- top of the first inning trying to trying to really just start about broad definitions but we're going to get into the prescriptive pieces of all of this you know there's conversations about additives that are in plastic and some that have potential human health consequences and like, what is a whitelist, you know, of additives that are, you know, so far as we know, okay. And, you know, which ones should not be considered for use at all? Like, will there be certain additives that'll be like banned outright because they have negative consequences for human health? We'll be figuring out all of that. So, uh, a lot of the, a lot of great work has already been done. Like the Ellen MacArthur, uh, foundation has done incredible work on circular design. You know, what you guys have done at Upstream and the World Economic Forum and PR3 on reuse, right? Like, I don't think anybody's trying to reinvent the wheel, but we have to decide uh, what is what. And that is in the way the world works and the way these treaties work or global instruments or whatever you want to call them, the governments decide that. And a lot of the folks in government are edu- getting educated you know, by the moment and are also working on climate and are also working on the high seas treaties. And like, so they're, they're, they're pulled between all these different environmental issues. So it's really up for, it's up to, to us to make sure they're us and all the different stakeholders to make sure their points are, are known so that they can make the right kind of recommendations. So this treaty can be effective. Well, one of the things that you mentioned um, around uh, science-based standards is what it sounds like is that's where you're drawing from, you know, is, you know, what is considered an acceptable substitute. 
And is it based on like the aquatic toxicity of it, you know, and at what levels and who kind of governs that? Um, it's, it's important to have everybody at the table. So could you talk a little bit about the, the science-based targeting of, of these toxics like plastics and, and what would be acceptable? Yeah. I mean, the actual like hard numbers on chemistry, that's not going to be my specialty, but the, there are science boards that are, uh, a part of this process. There are science advocacy groups that are pushing, uh, forth advocacy agenda on this specifically. One of the core tenants that was negotiated when they decided that this process was going to happen, which happened last February in Kenya in Nairobi at the, an event called UNEA 5.2. And one of the core principles is that this treaty should recognize the potential human health risks of plastic and what that looks like, right? So that right now is, I think, I don't think they're going to be getting into that deep in the first negotiation, but that is like a huge, huge conversation that has to happen. And you get into each specific type of plastic, there are you know, there's, there's different challenges and considerations with, with each and different types of technologies that are involving, you know, plastics. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a can of worms and it's a very technical can, can of worms, um, that I can't get too in the weeds with, but I, I definitely know that it's a huge priority, certainly, uh, with the environmental movement and the high ambition coalition of countries that's really hoping that this treaty has, looks a lot more like the Montreal protocol where we phased out these chlorofluorocarbons as opposed to the Paris Agreement, which was sort of broad guidelines and very, very heavy national action plans and gave a lot of control for the countries, specifically each country on how to regulate all of this. And, you know, that's that's really a, a quite a powerful statement, Dave, um, that this is similar to the Montreal Protocol. Um, you know, there was a moment in time where the ozone layer actually closed, that hole actually closed. And it was because of our efforts, our efforts on, on banning some of those chlorofluorocarbons. So I always have a hard time saying that too. It's like, it doesn't roll <laughs> off the, it doesn't roll off the tongue. I, I think it was probably, um, probably part of my, my, my chemistry background. I, uh, I, I worked in the, the chemical concern. I was in the environmental side of things, you know, cleaning up wastewater um, from oh, one of the cool. larger chemical companies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this that's a, actually a, an example of where we had some success, where we were able to, you know, the really big part was the monitoring part, right? Um, that's how we could determine that, um, you know, that that hole was closed up at, um, at a moment in time. Um, and then we've got, you know, some success where we can, you know, we can't say that everything is, is gloom and doom, um, because we've done this before. We've been here before where we can have, um, you know, countries and different stakeholders coming together. Um, what I find particularly exciting about what you're doing is that you are, you are, both educating and lifting at the same time in order for people to be activated into meaningful action. And you can only have that when you have good information. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what information is at this point 
has been gathered and what is 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 lacking and who's working on that? Well, I think there's been a tremendous amount. I mean, there is no shortage of 80-page reports in this uh, in, that, yeah. in, in the plastic ecosystem. I mean, not no human could read all of these 80-page reports. So you know, there's uh, and there's there's lots of different material coming from from different places, right? Like, so we work with uh, we love Jenna Jambeck, who is like down at University of Georgia. She has this program called CAPS, which is just incredible that helps uh, measure uh, microplastics uh, all over the world and in, in, in cities and, and countries. And she, her research specifically is what led to this uh, garbage truck full of plastic getting into the ocean uh, every minute of, of, uh, of every day, right? And, and which I think was a huge uh, global awareness sort of tangible sort of real sizing the issue right that's terrifying right and it and her, her research really helped that and I, I think it's even significantly worse now than it was when she did that initial research back in 2015 um i think you're starting to see a lot of across the board i mean you you know wef for example you know just did a huge report that i know that you guys were part of on on, on reuse and refill right Ellen MacArthur's done a tremendous amount of work on, you know, design and designing for recyclability. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different organizations that are putting out research on both sides of like the advanced recycling argument. So all of this is filtering into uh, the plastics treaty and filtering it into the governments that have to learn. I would say if, if you had to pick one report, many reports to sum up all of this, I would tell you or the audience to read Breaking the Plastic Wave, which is a report that was put out by Systemic and Pew Charitable Trust in 2018, which is the most, I think, comprehensive, tangible, even if you read the executive summary of that report, it, it just makes it super clear how much of an uphill battle that we have. You know, I mean, like one of the key things is like there's 2 billion people in the world that don't have any access to waste management at all. So of the, you know, soon to be 8 billion, you know, 2 billion don't have any waste management at all. And a lot of this is in countries in the global South, you know, monsoon zones, you know, high density populations that are having to illegally dump or burn their stuff, but illegally dump near rivers. The monsoons come, washes out in the rivers, washes out in the ocean, like rinse and repeat, you know, and there's some, you know, scary stuff in there. And there's a reason why this treaty needs to happen. And there's a reason why we need systems change. And when you say systems change in plastics, I say reuse to refill. That is the system change solution that we need to, we need to, we need to figure out, we need to hack that and get this thing going and, yeah, rebuild, that's and rebuild this system. I mean, we, like I said, we're, we're generally neutral, but I can, I can say, we need to rebuild reuse and refill systems that were dismantled in the 1970s when plastic came on board. I mean, that we need to figure it out. Yeah, uh, that's the ultimate source reduction. And I have to say, just looking back at, you know, 2022 and all the changes that have, you know, happened since then, since the beginning of reuse, refill being on the table seriously, and then tied to things like EPR and DRS, uh, and wondering if we are ambitious enough in our pursuits 
with this, the policy, with the infrastructure um, developments, I, I just, on a scale of one to maybe 10, 10 being ambitious enough to do all those things that we need to do. And you just mentioned this report, uh, Breaking the Plastic Wave. Where do you think we stand, like at the beginning of 2023? Are, are we ambitious enough? I'm going to say, I mean, if you're talking about all those different stakeholders, uh, I would, I mean, I'm encouraged, you know, things have moved fast with this issue. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you can feel it and see it. And nobody wants plastics on their beaches or straws up turtles noses or, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's been enough visceral, like it doesn't matter your political origins. You don't want, you know, you don't want to see this stuff in the environment. So that's why we are talking about a treaty, you know, Pretty soon after this really became sort of mainstream zeitgeist, right? Like 2017 is when I feel like this really like everybody was talking about plastics and every headline was about, you know, albatrosses with, you know, bottle caps in their stomachs and, and the, the turtle with the straw up his nose and the ocean cleanup project and all this stuff was coming online. So like, generally speaking, with respect to global crisis, we are moving fast here. We have to move way faster to get a hold ahead of it. And with recent refill, I mean, I would say we're like at a six, all of these big companies that I'm talking about are interested and spending money and trying to hack this and figure this out. And there's absolutely a inertia in industry to figure this out. And the environmental movement is pushing very, very hard, but I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't think we should maybe a, yeah, a six, we're over the hump where this is like being prioritized and we're starting to see real use cases and starting to see real companies being born, you know, and exciting. You know, like, just like I mentioned with the companies like turn and our cup that are in the concert space, like that's starting to work. That's pretty cool, but we're just at the beginning. So anyway, in closing, I'm going to go ahead and say a six and we got a lot more work to do. A six. Well, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> you heard it first. But um, Dave, I have to say you're one of the hardest working men in this field that I've seen. Um, you're everywhere uh, and you're doing some fantastic things. And I know we here at Upstream uh, absolutely appreciate everything that you're doing. Um, we also appreciate our partnership in educating. And we'd love to have you back. This was a, a really fantastic discussion on 2022, on where we're going, uh, where we've been a little bit. But um, I think that uh, folks like you are, we need 10 more of you really in this space. So I want to just thank you so much for spending some time with us. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I do have a team that all I, there are more of me on my team. They're all working really hard. So, and you guys are working so hard too. So incredibly grateful for our partnership priscilla thank you for the time and uh yeah love to come back let's do it and we can report back on what happened at inc1 next week all right that's going to be our next podcast then <laughs> looking forward to talking with you after then all right take care dave thanks so much bye all right bye-bye and that's our show if you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. 
You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.